morning, everybody. Good to see you. Happy New Year. And today is the first Sunday of 2013. And, uh, and I really sincerely believe that the Lord has good things in store for Whitefields in, in 2013. I'm excited to see what God's going to do amongst us. And I hope that you feel that same sense of excitement as, you, uh, as we begin this new year together as a fellowship. We've been studying through the book of Genesis for a couple months now, but in December we took a hiatus from it. We, uh, we did a topical study on the topic of Advent and the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you got a lot out of it. I certainly did in my studies and, and getting to share that with you. Uh, this week we're going to get back into Genesis. And as we do that, we are getting into the final saga. You know, the Genesis is made up of these, these grand sagas that tell the lives of certain people. But now we get into the last of the great sagas in the book of Genesis. It's the story of Joseph. So as we do that, would you please bow your head with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us, Lord. We thank you that you love us not only in spite of the fact we're wicked, Lord, but you prove your love for us. Lord, not only did you have to die for us, but you were glad to die for us. And we see your great love for us in that, Lord. And we thank you also that beyond that, Lord, you make us your children, and Lord, you work providentially in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for the great truth of your providence. And as we talk about that this morning, as we study about it, as we see it in the life of Joseph, I pray that, Lord, bless our hearts and give us a new perspective on our lives, on the things that happen to us. And we pray that you would work in this place. Lord, we pray that you'd fill this place with your spirit and with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So one quarter of the book of Genesis is devoted to telling the story of Joseph. The creation of the world gets two chapters. Actually, the creation of the stars in the universe, right? That actually only gets five words in the book of Genesis. But the story of Joseph gets 13 chapters. That's quite a bit. That tells you that there's something pretty important for us to learn here. There's something important that God wants to teach us through this story of this man's life. You know, but the story of Joseph, one of the, in many ways, is different from all the other stories that we've studied so far in Genesis. The, it's, it's different in two significant ways. The first way that the story of Joseph is different is that Joseph does not belong to the messianic line. Okay, so that's different because every, uh, every week, one thing I've been telling you is that the story of the Bible, including Genesis, is the story of not just the world in general, but it is specifically the story of Jesus. It's the story of the family line. It leads us up to the Messiah. Right? So we saw Adam and Eve, and they had some sons, right? Cain and Abel. But then this, the focus shifts from Cain and Abel, and it goes to Seth. Why? Why? Because from Seth comes Jesus, right? Then it goes Seth. Then you see Noah. You see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Because this is the family line that's leaving, leading us to Jesus, leading us to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The whole Bible, including Genesis, is the story of Jesus. But interestingly, at the end of Genesis, we get to this story about Joseph, and he is not part of that messianic line. Joseph is, is of course, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. Uh, but he's not the one from whom the Messiah will come. The Messiah is going to come from the family line of Judah, one of Jacob's other sons. So why is so much of Genesis dedicated to the story of Joseph? Well, the reason is because there's a very important doctrine which this story teaches us better than almost any other story in the entire Bible. And what is that doctrine? It's providence. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. 
The other way that the story of Joseph is, is different than all the other stories in the, in the book of Genesis is that in the first three quarters of Genesis, right, everything we've seen up until now, God is very visible. God works very visibly. God speaks audibly, right? God's visible. He's audible. He's right there. He shows up. He breaks in. You know, we see him in creation. He speaks. In the life of Noah, he speaks. He acts. Uh, we see him in Abraham's life. He shows up. Isaac, Jacob, he comes and wrestles with him. Uh, God's constantly breaking in, in in the first part of Genesis, breaking into people's lives, showing up in human history. There are visions. There are voices. There are appearances. There are miracles. It's very visible, it's very audible, it's very, a lot of supernatural stuff, right? But then you get here to the end of Genesis, to this last section of Genesis, to the story of Joseph, and all of that stuff is gone. We don't see it anymore. Interesting, right? There's no more miracles. There's no more visions, no more voices, no more appearances of God. There's a, a change, a shift here. And that's very different, like I said, from the rest of the book. In fact, in the chapter that Lisa just read for us, the chapter we're studying today, chapter 37, God is not mentioned at all. I mean, come on, this is the Bible, right? This is his book. You'd think that he could at least mention himself in, in most sections of it, right? I mean, uh, a bunch of stuff happened in this chapter, a bunch of really terrible stuff, actually, but, but God's not even mentioned. And isn't that interesting? It makes us ask the question, where is God? And isn't that the question that so many people ask nowadays? Isn't that the question that people have been asking for centuries and you know, thousands of years? Where is God when terrible stuff happens? Where is God when tragedies happen? Where is God when injustice happens and stuff like what we read about in our story? Where is God? Where is God when bad stuff happens? People sometimes would say this, well, if God is really in charge of everything like you Christians claim that he is, well, then either he doesn't care very much about certain people or he's completely incompetent because look at all the bad things that happen to me. Look at all the bad things that happen to other people. If God is really in charge, is he incompetent? Why are these things happening? Where is he? The last few chapters of Genesis, the story of Joseph, which we're getting into now, they answer this question more directly than almost any other part of the Bible. And they do it, interestingly enough, not by giving us theoretical answers, not by giving us a, a philosophical answer or you know, a, the a theory of, of why this happens, but they do it by giving us a story. Isn't that interesting? A story of, of a person's life. You know, there's one doctrine that really summarizes this up, as I said before, and that is the doctrine of providence. You know, many doctrines are hard to wrap your head around and really understand until you see them in someone's life. If you see a doctrine that's taught in the Bible worked out in someone's life, then you look at it and it makes sense and you say, ah, yeah, and that, that's what that is. That's what the Bible's talking about there. I get it now. I see what it looks like. And this is one of the reasons why as Christians, it's so important for us to be in community with other Christians. To have Christian friends, not just, and not just attend church services, but actually become part of a community of believers. Get involved in the lives of people who love God and walk with God. And because as you do that, what you're going to see is you're going to see the teachings of the Bible, the doctrines, the truth of the scripture worked out practically in their lives. And you're going to get to observe that. People will observe it in you. And we grow as a result of that. We get better understanding. 
So, I would encourage you, if you are willing to let the story of Joseph draw you in, you're going to come out of it with a new perspective on your life, on the things that happen to you. What we observe in the life of Joseph, what, what we see here, what God wants us to see, what he intended us for, to see through this story is the doctrine of the providence of God. Metaphorically, speaking of providence, you could put it this way. That God has two hands with which he works. The one hand is the seen hand of miracle. That's what we've seen throughout Genesis. Uh, God shows up and he speaks. He wrestles with Jacob. He speaks to Abraham. He opens Sarah's womb and makes a woman who's not physically able to have children pregnant. And God works in these ways as well today. God causes miracles to happen. God heals people. Uh, I've seen that happen up close and personal with members of my family, with people that I've prayed for. Some of you uh, have seen those kind of things happen, you know, supernatural things. People prayed for and God works and does something that's, that's not naturally possible. But that's not the only way that God works. And that's important because some people would say, well, I've never seen a miracle. I've never seen, you know, at least not to my knowledge, I don't believe I've ever seen a, a supernatural miracle. Because the other hand that God uses is the invisible hand of providence. He determines where you're going to be born, who your parents will be, what kind of uh, opportunities will come into your life, what kind of people will come into your life. He gives you certain talents and abilities and experiences. And all these things are the hand of God at work in your life, subtly, quietly, but they are the hand of God nonetheless. And they're, they're no less profound, no less powerful than the miraculous seen hand of God. They're just the two hands that God works with. You know, providence means this, that God rules over creation. God rules over history. We have free will. We commit sin. But the point of providence is that God is greater than our sin. God is greater than sinners. He is able to work out all things as he desires because he is above all things and he rules over all things. He's able to use even evil things and terrible things for his purpose and his glory and for our good. That is really what it means that he is a redemptive God. And that's what we see here in the story of Joseph. Providence is exactly what Paul the Apostle is talking about in Romans chapter 8 verse 28 where he says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, the reason that verse is so well known, the reason why that is a, a favorite verse for so many people is because the doctrine of providence, when you really get it, when it really sinks in and you actually start to believe it and live as if it's true, it gives you a completely different perspective on your life, on the things that happen to you. You know, providence means that God is actively involved in the things that are going on in this world. You know, deism is the belief that God kind of created the world kind of like a clockmaker. He wound it all up and then let it go, and he kind of checked out, and he's gone on an extended vacation, and he's not really involved, right? But the doctrine of providence, what we see here in the story of Joseph, is that God is involved. He didn't just create things and then check out. He's actively involved. Providence also means that, that we don't believe that things just happen by random chance, we believe that God ordains events in our lives. He's working out his plans through his providence. But providence also, it doesn't mean fatalism. 
It doesn't mean that your decisions don't matter. It doesn't mean that uh, you don't actually make choices for yourself. The choices you make do matter greatly. So the Bible neither teaches chance nor fate, but the Bible teaches a providential God who sits on the throne and is actively involved in the happenings of our world and our lives. So the point of the story of Joseph, the point of the doctrine of providence that we're going to see here is this, that with God, silence is not absence. With God, hiddenness is not impotence. With God, when God seems most absent, oftentimes that is exactly when he is doing his most profound work behind the scenes. And there, there are two overarching themes that I'd like you to take note of as we study this chapter which I'd encourage you to consider as uh, we go through this in light of not only this story, but in light of your own life as well. And these are the two. The, accident, or the action in the accidents and the salvation in the silence. Okay? So the, ac- the action, I'm probably going to stumble over this for a while. So the action in the accidents and the salvation in the silence. Okay? Our story begins with telling us that Jacob, also known as Israel, he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. He's got 12 sons, and he's playing favorites. He's sinning as a dad by favoring some of his kids over his other kids. And the one he favors more than any of them is Joseph. And Joseph's brothers see it, of course, and it causes them to become very bitter against their brother. They begin to hate him, actually. Have you ever seen a picture of uh, Mount St. Helens before it erupted? I think I have a picture up here for you. Now, before Mount St. Helens erupted, it was just this picturesque, idyllic, uh, snow-capped mountain, you know, beautiful, in front of this lake and everything. Um, You know, there's nothing really that seems more solid and more permanent and, you know, um, not going to move than a mountain, right? I mean, what else could you picture? But Mount St. Helens is interesting because on the outside it looks so ideal. It looks so perfect. But underneath the, the, the surface of this great mountain there was something brewing. Right? There was something brewing which was about to blow the top off of the whole thing. And that's kind of what Jacob's family was like, right? Because they were rich, they were prosperous, they had a lot of possessions, they, they had you know, a family business with lots of employees, they were successful, had all these kids, but, but then underneath the surface, something was brewing which was about to blow the top off their whole family. And there was envy, there was favoritism, which led to envy, which led to bitterness, which led to hatred. And it was all just below the surface, brewing waiting for one day to just blow everything up. And I wonder if there's anyone here, if that, if that describes your life, if that describes your family. Now on the surface, everything, you know, when people look at you, they might think that, man, your family looks great, you guys look stable, you look secure, you look ideal. But underneath, there's something brewing, which really has the power to just blow the top off of everything. I've seen that happen before to families. Maybe you have too. Uh, I would encourage you that in your families, in your relationships with other people, don't just settle for making sure things look good on the outside. You need to deal with the things that are brewing underneath the surface, the issues of the heart, the issues of sin. Uh, Because if you don't, and you just kind of hope that they're going to get better if you ignore them, uh, they're not going to get better on their own. And 
it might not happen immediately, but the longer you wait, the longer you let things brew, the more likely they are to eventually just blow the top off of things. The bigger the explosion will be. That's what happened to this family. So Jacob gives Joseph this robe. It's the technicolor dream coat that we all know of, right? Now maybe some of your translations, they would say that this is a coat of many colors. Other translations will say that this is a coat of big sleeves, long sleeves. So if you look in your margins, you might see that. This was a coat of long sleeves. So probably it was both. They, they say this is a hard word to translate. Um, you can imagine this coat being this robe, just this big, colorful, ornate, expensive robe with these long, loose sleeves. Now, the significance of this robe is really two main things. Number one, it shows us that Jacob lavished money on Joseph in ways that he didn't do for his other children. Uh, this would be like, you know, dad comes home and he says, hey kids, I bought ice cream for one of you. And he did that every single day. You know what I mean? That would be a bummer. But uh, this robe, it also re represents a position that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. In that day, more, most men would wear robes with no sleeves or short sleeves because they're doing manual labor. And sleeves, you know, long robes, they're just going to get in the way. So if you had a robe with long sleeves, that meant that you were the boss. You were the foreman. You were the head honcho. And so we can see that this was the case with Joseph because he keeps bringing back these reports about his brothers to his dad, right? Look at this guy. He's giving performance reviews to these people. You can imagine why they don't like him, right? He's, he's out there with this big coat on, walking around like the boss, holding his clipboard, looking over people's shoulders, taking notes on what they're doing and reporting back to dad. You know, if, if, uh, if we didn't have police today, these people would get murdered all the time, right? Um, the point is, uh, Jacob not only loved Joseph the most, but he elevated him to this position over his brothers in the family business that in that day should have been reserved for the oldest son. Of course, Joseph was not the oldest son. He was, he was actually quite far down the, uh, the line. He was one of the youngest sons that Jacob had, but he was the oldest son that Jacob had from Rachel. Remember, we studied that story a few months ago, and that, you know, Rachel was the love of his life. So you've got to imagine the scene. You've got all these brothers, and they've got their runt kid brother walking around with a big coat and a clipboard, bossing them around, telling them what to do, and reporting on them to their dad. So it doesn't help Joseph either that he has this dream from God, and it is legitimately from God, but what does he do? He goes and he tells his brothers, hey guys, guess what? I had this dream, and you were all bowing down to me. Isn't that awesome? They didn't think it was very awesome, actually. The point of this dream is very clear to everyone immediately. Joseph is saying that in this dream, God told him that he's going to rule over them one day. They are going to bow down before him. That would be totally opposite to the culture that day. In that culture, young men bowed down to older men. And, and this just causes them to hate him even more. Then he has this next dream. And this dream, in, in this dream, not only do his brothers gather around and bow down to him, but his parents also gather around and bow down to him. And, uh, you know, that... Again, just fuel on the fire. So were these dreams from God? Yeah, they were. Are they going to come true? Yes, they will. Well, then what's the problem? Well, you've got Joseph. He's this teenage kid. Uh, he's been given a lot of responsibility. And in sharing the dreams that he had, in the way that he did, he is at the very least 
callous and insensitive, and at the very most, he is mean and cruel to his brothers. There's just this lack of humility here on Joseph's part. There's a lack of concern for how this is going to be taken by his brothers. You know, if this dream is true, if it's really going to happen, then it's going to happen whether or not he tells his brothers about it, right? But even, even his dad has to step in at one point and tell Joseph to kind of, hey, just cool it a little bit with talking about these dreams and the way you're doing it. It's, it's a little bit too much. But here's what's interesting about this to me. Interestingly enough, this is the one and only negative thing that we read about Joseph in the entire story of Joseph, right? In the entire story of his life in Genesis, this is the worst thing we read about him. That one time as a teenager, he was a bit insensitive and a bit callous, and he told his brothers about what was going to happen to him in the future, and he hurt their feelings, right? And if that's the worst thing that somebody can say about you, that when you were a teenager, you were kind of dumb, and you did something that was insensitive, then you're doing pretty good, you know? I don't know if you know this, but, you know, teenage boys, not always the best uh, communicators, right? Not always the most effective communicators. But aside from this, everything we read about Joseph is going to be that he was a godly man who walked with the Lord. He trusted the Lord from his youth. He never committed any grievous sins uh, like his dad did, like his grandpa did, like his great-grandpa did, and, and like pretty much everybody else in the Bible did. He heard the voice of the Lord. He walked with the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. Even in the midst of great difficulty, even in the midst of suffering, he never shook his fist at God. He never... Uh, cursed God, and he was used by God in a great way. You know, when we look at the lives of all the other people in the Bible who, who commit these great sins, but God shows them grace, I hope that encourages you about how great and vast the grace of God towards you is. That it's bigger than your sin. That he can love you and forgive you and restore you, even from the greatest sins and errors that you might have committed. But, when we look at the story of Joseph, I also want you to be encouraged, but in a different way. I want you to look at him and be encouraged that it is possible to be filled with the Spirit of God and walk with God your whole life without having to have this roller coaster experience where you're always getting into sin and then getting out of sin and you're backsliding and then coming back to the Lord and you're always kind of up and down. It is possible, as we see in the life of Joseph, and I hope you're encouraged by this, to be filled with the Spirit of God and walk with God and not just not fall into folly all the time. You don't have to do that. You know, it is possible to have what I like to call a gloriously boring testimony. A gloriously boring testimony. Have you ever noticed this thing that we do in churches where we like to bring up the guy who has like the craziest story and we present that as a good testimony, right? This is like the most sensational crazy story like I used to live in a trash can and I shot drugs into my eyeballs, you know, and then I murdered the president and I ate my mother, and I was the head of a drug cartel, and then I met Jesus, and now I wear clothes, and I go to church, and everything's great. The end. And everybody, that was a great testimony. We need more of those. We need to put those up all the time, you know? Well, if you don't have a crazy testimony, if you don't have a, then, then you don't have a good testimony, right? That's kind of the message that we sometimes, uh, probably not uh, that we want to, that we're thinking it, but that's kind of what we do, right? You just have to, and if you don't have one of these crazy 
testimonies of bad stuff that you did, then you just got to like sit there and be bummed and wish that you had sinned some more when you were younger so that you could have a really good testimony to share with everybody. And then you feel bad. You know, you're like, well, my testimony stinks. I just, my mom and dad were believers and they took me to church and then I heard about Jesus and I believed in him and, and I just can't pinpoint a day when I got saved and all I know is I'm here right now and I love Jesus and I walk with him and, and I've never been to jail and I have a job that I hold down and, and go to every day and I actually, you know, I have kids and I feed them, you know, so, and everybody's like, wow, dude, bummer of a testimony, bummer for you, you know, that was boring. Well, let me tell you this, shoot for that, okay? Go for a boring testimony. Make that the goal of your life, to have a testimony like this. I read my Bible, I walk with Jesus, I obey Jesus, so does my wife and my kids or my husband, whoever you are, you know, and, uh, and we don't have a lot of drama because there's no major sins and our, you know, our family life would make for a very, very boring reality show. We'd probably get canceled after a few episodes. And I, I just serve the Lord as often as I can, and when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and the end, Right? Now that is the testimony that I'm shooting for. That's a testimony that's a good testimony. I remember when I, when I was, uh, you know, younger, when I first started, when I went out to Hungary, you know, I kind of tried to spice up my testimony a little bit, you know what I mean? That I, you know, I had done a few things, but uh, I tried to make them sound, you know, it was like only a few weeks of my life, but I tried to make it sound like, you know, I was in a drug cartel and I murdered the president, pretty much, you know? Um, I actually had this girl in... Uh, in our church in Agar once tell me, she told me this. I was like, am I in a dream? She tells me, um, I don't have a good testimony. Maybe it'd be good if I actually backslid for a while. And then I'd have a really powerful testimony to share with people that God could use. No, that should not be your goal. Uh, you know, don't never, never feel bad for having a boring testimony. That's a glorious thing, and, and I believe it brings glory to the Lord. Because, you know, think about what this does. Uh, when, when the church emphasizes these crazy stories and puts these forward as our face, right? These are the good testimonies. Uh, what does that do? I, I think that actually puts distance between people. And it makes people think, you know, people who come in and they hear that and they say, well, I don't have those kind of problems, you know? I, I actually hold down a job. I pay my bills. I, I went to college. I, I have a mortgage, you know? I can see why that guy needs Jesus, but why do I need Jesus? Because, you know, a lot of these testimonies, the, the goal is that people would see the transforming power of God, right? That's, that's the purpose for why we want to share these testimonies. But, but sometimes all that comes through, all that's communicated to outsiders is that the whole point of the gospel is to take you from being a deviant person and make you into a nice normal person, you know? And, um, and if somebody says, well, I already am a nice normal person, I'm a, I'm a pretty decent guy, uh, they needed Jesus because they were a total deviant. Well, but I, I'm not. So, you know, good for you that you found Jesus. I'm doing pretty good here on my own. But the point of the gospel is not to make you a good person. Do you understand that? I really want to say that, and I hope you get that. Now, that's, that's maybe a side effect of the gospel, but it's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is not to take you from being a bad person, make you a good person. Jesus didn't come primarily to teach us how to be nice people. Jesus came primarily to save our souls from our sins, to save us from the wrath of God that we fully deserve because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then once we've been saved, he wants to transform us. He wants to teach us a new way of living 
a new way of loving people to make us more like him so that we can be full of joy. But if we're not saved from our sins, if we have not received forgiveness of our sins and, and the grace of God, then it doesn't matter how moral we are. It doesn't matter if we recycle or that we give money to charity. Those things aren't going to save us, you know. And the message of the Bible is that everyone needs to be born again. Not just the crazy drug addicts, you know, but even the upright citizens, right? The business leaders, the, the good family men, because they too, apart from Jesus, are utterly lost in their sin. So I encourage you, make it your goal to have a testimony like Joseph's. Walk with the Lord faithfully all the days of your life. You don't need to do the up and down thing. You don't need to do the backsliding thing. Trust in him even in the midst of difficulty, don't fall into sin and folly and be a person who's fully surrendered to God, whom God uses in a significant way for his purposes. So here's what happens as our story goes on. Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers who are pastoring the sheep. And what follows is a series of coincidences, a series of very apparent accidents, so-called, right? On the surface, each of these coincidences just appears to be a chance happening. Okay, check this out. Jacob just happened to send Joseph to check on his brothers in Shechem. The brothers just happened to decide to not stay in Shechem, but to go to Dothan, which is a very remote place where whatever happens there, nobody's going to find out about it. Joseph just happens to run into this stranger who a day or so ago just happened to overhear uh, Joseph's brothers just happened to walk by them and just happened to be walking by them at the exact moment when they were speaking about, hey, we should go to Dothan. And everybody said, okay. He just happened to walk by right then. He heard it. He runs into Joseph and tells him, hey, I heard some guys talking. They're going to Dothan. So Joseph goes to Dothan and his brother sees him. But Reuben just, again, he just happens to be there right at the moment to save Joseph from being killed, but he also just happens to not be there when they sell him into slavery, right? Isn't this, isn't this a little bit uh, too coincidental? And the Ishmaelites, right, these traitors, they just happen to come by in this very desolate place right at the moment when Joseph is in the pit and his brothers are trying to decide what to do with him. So there's a series of coincidences that just happen to take place in this exact way that they do. And we say, well, that's life, right? Life is just a series of coincidences. But here's the thing, and this is what we need to see, that if everything that happened had not happened in the exact order that it did, in the exact way that it did, then what happens? Everyone dies, okay? If everything had not happened exactly the way it did, exactly, to the T, everybody dies. If Joseph had been killed, everybody dies. If Joseph had not been sold, if everything had not happened exactly as it did, everybody dies because a famine is coming and Joseph has to get to this place where he will have the power to save not only his family but the other nations of the world. And so we look at this and we see this amazing series of events and we realize that these could not have just been coincidences because if any one of them doesn't happen, then not only does this family die, but tens of thousands of people die in this big famine that's coming. And beyond that, if this family dies, well then the messianic line stops. 
the messianic line dies, through which God has promised to send the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So the point is this. If these things hadn't happened exactly as they did, then Jesus doesn't come, and we are lost in our sins with no hope for salvation, no hope for redemption, done, game over. And again, notice that there's, there's no mention of God in this chapter. God never speaks. God never s does anything that we can see, you know, in a, in a dramatic way. Joseph, he's getting stripped of his robe. He's being thrown in this empty cistern, this empty well, and he's sold into slavery. And the brothers are, um, they're lying to their father about what happened to Joseph. There's this great injustice. There's suffering going on. And where is God in all of this? Where is God? Well, I'll tell you where he is, and that's what we see as our story goes on. Here's where God is. He's right in the middle of it. He's right in the middle of it. He seems absent on the surface, but now because of our perspective, we look at this story and we see the action in the accidents. We see that, where is God? He's right there. He's there managing down to the minutest little detail. He's orchestrating each of these events. Some of them seem so arbitrary when they happened, right? Others of them seem so terrible when they happened. But every single one of them had to happen. God was arranging things. He was setting things up for what? For the salvation, not only of this family, but the salvation of the world. Not only do we see God's action in the accidents, but we also see God's salvation in the silence. In verses 23 through 24, we read about this brutal thing that the brothers did to Joseph. They strip him of his robe, they dump him in this open pit, and they sell him for cheap. Now, we don't read it here, but in, in chapter 42, when the brothers are remembering and they're talking about this event, we read that Joseph was crying out in distress. It says that he was distressed in his soul and he was begging for mercy. So isn't that interesting? Right? We read that the, the brothers sat down and ate lunch. I mean, you have to imagine this. They're sitting down, they're eating their sandwich, and you got Joseph like 10 feet away begging them to save him. And surely Joseph, if he was a man who was a believer, surely he prayed. Surely he asked God, God, intervene. Save me, God. Don't let me be carried away. Save me. Joseph is crying out, but where is God? Here's the thing. If Joseph had not been saved, or sorry, let's put it this way. If Joseph had been saved from the thing he wanted to be saved from, if Joseph had gotten what he asked for, if God had said, okay, and saved him, then he would have been lost in a much more profound way. He actually had to be lost to be saved. He had to be lost so that others could be saved. He had to be lost so that we could be saved. He actually had to go through this so that he could be saved. The point is this. God was actually caring greatly for Joseph in his silence. God was actively working on Joseph's behalf in silence. By not answering Joseph's prayer the way that Joseph wanted, God was doing something bigger than what Joseph could have ever known at that moment. And that is providence. You see, in Joseph's life, what we see is the invisible hand of God. It was at work the whole time. God was at work in the accidents. God was saving him in the silence. This is providence. And the question for us is, do we actually believe in the providence of God? Because if we do, it will change the way that we look at our lives and the things that happen to us. And think about this. Dothan is mentioned 
two times in the Bible. One time is here. The other time is just very briefly in 2 Kings chapter 6. And what happens in 2 Kings chapter 6 is that the king of Syria is trying to kill the prophet Elisha. Okay, he's coming to get him. And Elisha the prophet in the city of Dothan, he calls out to God and says, God, save me. And you know what God does? He saves him. He comes with chariots of fire, right? You've heard of that before? That's where that's from. He comes with chariots of fire and he saves Elisha. Now think about this. Same Bible, same city, same God, similar situation, guy in distress, calling out for God to save him. And in one case, God comes with chariots of fire. And in another case, God says nothing and does nothing, completely silent. But we see now that God was actively working for both of them. God was actually caring in both of those ways, in, with both of his hands, one in a dramatic salvation and the other one with a deafening silence. But God was there in both cases and God was at work in both cases. And so now I'd like you to just apply this to your life. What God wants to teach us through this story is that God is at work in your life in ways that you don't realize. Because with God, silence is not absence and hiddenness is not impotence. Sometimes when God seems the most absent is when he is actually doing the most profound work in your life. And just like that was true in the case of Joseph, it can also be true in your life. But even more than pointing us to our own lives, this story points us to Jesus Christ, who was also loved by his father. He was sent by his father to his brethren, who was also rejected by those he was sent to. He was, sent, he was stripped of his robes. He was also put, placed in a pit, in a cave. And he also cried out for someone to save him, but he only got silence in return. Jesus Christ, like Joseph, had to be lost so that we could be saved. The gospel message is this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have sinned, and as a result, you, are, you have a wicked heart. I have a wicked heart. We are wicked people. And the gospel message says this, you are so wicked that God had to come and die for you, but you are also so loved that God was glad to come and die for you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and the only hope for your salvation, the only hope for your redemption, the only hope for a relationship with God, then God will accept you as his child. And if you are accepted as his child, he promises to work all things for your ultimate good, just like he did for Joseph. That's providence. And that's good news. Am I right? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your providence in our lives. Lord, we thank you that even when you appear absent, Lord, we can know that you are actively working on our behalf, Lord. And, but we also know that, Lord, there's a caveat to this, Lord. There, you do this for those who are your children. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today who has not yet put their faith in you, who has not yet put their faith in you as their only hope for salvation, as their only hope for justification and redemption, the only hope for heaven. Lord, I pray that they would put their faith in you today. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, convict them of their need for Jesus. And Lord Jesus, for those of us who have put our faith in you, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, help us to walk with you as Joseph walked with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.